Let's just bow our hearts one more time as we turn to God's word together. Father, we just commit this time of study to you. We ask your blessing now. Open our ears, our hearts, Lord. May we be ready to receive. And Father, stir us, we pray. Lord, your word is living and powerful. So as we read these things this morning, Father, may we be affected and changed by your word. Lord, may we be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And so Lord, we thank you for these things that were written aforetime that are here for our learning. Lord, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. And so Lord, we give you this time now. Speak to us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, most Sunday mornings when I get the opportunity to come and speak and share, I'm kind of excited because God's word is always rich and there's so much to, to see. But this morning, there's some wonderful things um, that I've really enjoyed studying and going through during the week. So let's jump straight in. Now, I want to just give you a uh, answer to a question that I asked last week, in a sense. You remember I put up this picture. It's a picture, supposedly, of the walls of uh, the city of Jerusalem with the um, Assyrian army surrounding. And I said at the time there was something wrong with the picture. Well, the problem with that picture is that there's all sorts of fighting going on. You see smoke from within the city. You see kind of clouds of dust coming from debris falling from the walls and so on. Let me tell you what scripture says. It says, this is Isaiah speaking, or God speaking through Isaiah. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into the city nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shields, nor cast a bank against it. But by the way that he came, the same shall he return, and shall not come into this city, says the Lord. You see, we spoke last week a lot about this incredible victory that God gives to Israel, and particularly to King Hezekiah, who was faithful and trusted God. Who, the moment he was in this predicament, goes to the Lord. And when he's challenged a second time, he goes and takes the letter that he receives into the temple, and effectively says, God is your problem, I'm trusting you. But you know, even if one archer had just shot an arrow by mistake, this prophecy, well, these these words of of Isaiah, the words of God through Isaiah, wouldn't have been fulfilled. You know, God's deliverance is absolutely complete. There's so much safety in our God. You know, there's a number of scriptures that tell us this. Proverbs 18.10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. Isn't it good to know that you're safe in the Lord? There is nothing the enemy can do to touch you. Psalm 61, 2-4 From the end of the earth will I cry unto thee. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For thou hast been a shelter for me and a strong tower from the enemy. I will abide in in thy tabernacle forever. I will trust in the covert of thy wings, Selah. Again, another scripture just reminding us how secure and safe we are in Christ. And yes, the body might go. We might get killed as we stand for Christ. But that's just the flesh. That's not who we are. Our souls are secure for eternity. And there is nothing that anybody can do now. That will put our souls in danger because we are safe in Christ. One incredible victory, deliverance in the, the natural realm we see here in scripture. But so much more applicable in the spiritual. Let's jump straight in into chapter 20. Because we read in those days. Now I want to make the point straight away that what we're about to look at now happened in those days. It didn't happen after those days. But this is something that is occurring during 
not after. So in those days, the days that we've just been looking at, this siege of Jerusalem by the armies of Assyria, in those days was Hezekiah sick unto death. Now, you might think it's enough that God has allowed this army, this huge army, to come and encamp against Jerusalem. You remember, I think was it 436 of the cities in Jerusalem, principal cities, had already fallen. If that wasn't bad enough, and Hezekiah now effectively under siege in Jerusalem, not knowing what to do, now he gets sick as well. You know, sometimes the Lord seems to let everything happen at once in our lives. And we don't understand why. Well, let me tell you where we're going to get to. And that is that it's all done for his glory. And you'll see that dramatically played out in a moment. So, in those days was Hezekiah sick unto death. And the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, came to him and said unto him, Thus says the Lord, set thine house in order. For thou shalt not die, for thou shalt die and not live. So, it's getting really bad for Hezekiah, isn't it? You know, he's just been obedient and faithful, trusting God, and now God says, okay, you're gonna get poorly, but guess what? It's gonna get even worse than that, you're gonna die. Then he turned his face to the wall and prayed unto the Lord, saying, I beseech thee, I beg you, O Lord, remember now how I've walked before thee in truth and with a perfect heart. Now that's a, a prayer and a half there, isn't it? Could we pray that? If we were in this predicament, could we actually go to God and say, God, I have walked before you in truth and with a perfect heart. I can't give you some idea. I don't think this is pride or arrogance on his part. I think genuinely from what we read in scripture, this king really had walked with God in truth and with a perfect heart. And he makes this appeal. He says, and have done that which is good in thy sight. Such a contrast. All those other kings we've been looking at over recent weeks. And Hezekiah wept saw. You know, the Bible does tell us in Psalms that every tear God records. It came to pass, before Isaiah was gone out into the middle court, that the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Turn again and tell Hezekiah, the captain of my people, Thus says the Lord, the God of David, thy father, I have heard thy prayer, I have seen thy tears. Behold, I will heal thee on the third day thou shalt go up unto the house of the Lord. Now, a couple of things. Firstly, as a servant of God, you have to be flexible. Isaiah's just gone in and delivered a message. He comes out and God says, right, I want you to go and deliver the exact opposite of that message. You know, some of us would possibly complain. But God, I've just done what you asked me to. I just said this. I can't go back and say something else. It's going to make me look silly. And that's the problem, isn't it? So often we're concerned about how we look. You know, we need to be flexible as a servant of God and willing to do whatever he asks. You know, I wonder whether there was that moment where Isaiah thought, well, did I not hear you right the first time, God? Or really, do you really want me to say this? There must have been, from a human perspective, an element of doubt on Isaiah's part. But he also is faithful here. So he does go back and tells Hezekiah this message. And notice again, I will heal thee on the third day. Now, there's no meaningless details in the Bible. Firstly, I'd just say though that Isaiah didn't speak even the first time until God gave him something to say. And then the second time again, he speaks as God prompts him, as God speaks to him. It's Oswald Chambers that makes a comment that so often we become, and the word he uses, phrase he uses is amateur providences in other people's lives. In other words, we like to get involved and try and get in and solve the problems and fix things and so on. You know, we look at someone who's not where we are or doesn't think how we think and we, we like to try and convert them to our point of view, convert them to our opinion. 
You know, we're not trying to make disciples after ourselves. We're trying to make disciples after Christ. And actually, unless God is giving you something to say, you're better not saying it. Part of this message then that Isaiah is told to, to go and give back to the king says this, and I will add unto thy days 15 years. So he's getting an extension to his life. And I will deliver thee and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria. And I will defend this city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Now, just firstly note then that this is still during the time of the siege. Because the Assyrian army have not yet been defeated. That means this 185,000 troops that we read about last time, we've just kind of stepped back a little bit in reviewing something else that was happening concurrently. But as yet, that victory hasn't occurred. So the Assyrian army is still encamped outside because part of this message is that God is going to deliver them. And God will defend this city, as he says, for my sake and for my servant David's sake. Once again, God is a God that keeps his covenants. This covenant that had been made with David, God wasn't about to let that be broken. And Isaiah said, now we're not told that God specifically says to Isaiah to do this, but Isaiah says, take a lump of figs, and they took and laid on the boil, and he recovered. So that's what will happen. Okay, these lump of figs and some sort of uh, natural remedy seemingly that God uses to, to heal him of this condition. Now, I want to just notice here that we have Hezekiah portrayed as a type of Christ. You see, the Bible is full of these anticipatory models. So we simply have a model given in advance of something that, by God's foreknowledge, he knows will occur later. So he gives you a model in advance of what is going to happen. And there's so many of these that point to Jesus Christ and what he accomplished. So, notice the situation. We've got, if you like, the king of this world, the king of Assyria. The king of this world is coming and bringing his threats. Hezekiah was faithful and obedient to the Lord, just as Jesus came and was obedient to his father. Notice that Hezekiah's people followed him just as Jesus is, follow him. And though as dead for Hezekiah, on the third day he rose to new life. Christ also died for us, but then rose again on the third day. Just a, a, another one of these many models we see. And then notice that the enemy was soundly defeated. A lovely little picture that we just have recorded for us. And finally, All of this is part of that fulfilling God's promise to David, just as it was when Christ died. Fulfilling the promise that there would be one to sit on the throne of David forever. And as Christ rises again, he becomes the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And forever there will be a descendant of David sat on the throne. I want to just take you to Isaiah chapter 38. You might want to turn there in your Bibles if you you do, because it's worth probably marking this. It's a very, it's a parallel passage in a sense, but we get some more details in Isaiah than we do as you recorded for us in Kings. Now, in Isaiah, picking up chapter 38 verse 9, we read, The writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, when he had been sick and was recovered of his sickness. So after he's better, he writes this. Now this, you'll see, is prophetic. It's speaking of Jesus. He says, I said in the cutting off of my days, I shall go to the gates of the grave. I am deprived of the residue of my years. Okay, a couple of things. Obviously, this is Hezekiah that's writing this. Just to mention, his name means strengthened of Jehovah. 
I mean, that in itself is a type of Christ. Because Christ was strengthened of, of God. Particularly, you think of the Garden of Gethsemane. But Hezekiah, his name means strengthened of Jehovah. And he says, I shall not see the Lord, even the Lord, in the land of the living. I shall behold man no more with inhabitants of the world. You see, it's because of what Christ did for us. He was cut off from the Father. Now, there are some that don't think that Jesus was cut off from the Father. They'll argue that the Godhead could never be separated in any way, shape or form. But you see, I believe, and I think this is what Scripture teaches, that Christ became sin for us. On account of that sin, he had to have been cut off from the Father to fully pay the debt for our sin. You see, no individual, no created being has yet experienced hell in terms of the eternal separation. But I believe that Jesus did. Jesus, I think, is the only individual so far that knows what it's like to truly be cut off from God's presence. And that's why on the cross, Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As Jesus suddenly is plunged into this horrific situation of being without the presence of God. You see, Psalm 139 tells us that even now in Hades, the holding place, if you like, for those that will later be judged at the great white throne, even in Hades, God's presence can be felt. And we know that that now that God causes the the sun, the rain, all these things for the good and for the bad, for the, the wicked and the righteous. We all benefit for now. But there is coming a day when there will be people that have not put their trust in Jesus Christ that will eventually be cast into hell, the, the lake of fire. And people joke about hell and they think that it's going to be, they'll go and they'll party and it's where they'll spend, you know, eternity with their mates and so on. It's not going to be anything like that. The horror of hell is that you'll be cut off from God. And that is just unbelievable torture for a human soul that has been created by God, and it has been created for God. And the people that mess around with the world and think it's all a big joke have no concept of what they're running into. Here it says, Hezekiah speaking, but I believe prophetically of Jesus, I said, I shall not see the Lord, even the Lord in the land of the living. I shall behold man no more with the inhabitants of the world. Mine age is departed and is removed from me as a shepherd's tent. I have cut off like a weaver my life. He will cut me off with his uh, with pining sickness. It just speaks of sin, doesn't it? All these things. From day even to night will thou make an end of me. I reckon till morning that as a lion so will he break all my bones. Even day to night will thou make an end of me. Yeah, this is really speaking of this separation of Jesus carrying in his body the sin, the punishment that we deserve. I mean, Christ gave up his right to this life, just as Hezekiah was really writing here in obedience to the Father. You remember, I think it's um, Flavel, the uh, 16th century Puritan, speaking of Jesus, uh, almost as if Jesus was saying, you know, that he would rather choose to suffer God's wrath than that his created beings, the, the bride of Christ, the church, should suffer it. He says, upon me, my father, upon me be all their debts. And then, seemingly the father replies, as Favor has this kind of conversation, but my son, if thou undertake for them, thou must reckon to pay the last might. Expect no abatements. If I spare them, I will not spare thee. 
Well, that's the reality. That's why when we celebrate communion, really we're celebrating this incredible transaction that has taken place. That Christ, who knew no sin, became sin. So that we, who are ungodly, who were just lost without God in this world, we inherit Christ's righteousness. It's an incredible transaction. Like a crane or a swallow, so did I chatter, I did mourn as a dove. Mine eyes fail with looking upward. O Lord, I am oppressed, undertake for me. What shall I say? He hath both spoken unto me and he himself done it. I shall go softly all my years in the bitterness of my soul. I mean, that's just an interesting comment, just thinking in relation to Jesus, because even Jesus' youth was characterized by oppression. He became the song of the drunkards, Psalm 69 tells us, and you know, all these things. Jesus' whole life was a life, in some senses, you could argue, of bitterness, because he came to die for us, to purchase us by his own blood. Oh Lord, by, look at this. Oh Lord, by these things men live. I mean, this is the words of Hezekiah, but you have to start to see this prophetically because it doesn't really fully apply to Hezekiah. Oh Lord, by these things men live. By what things? By the death of Christ in our place. By the fact that he died young. He didn't live out his days. Because he took the bitterness upon him that we deserve. Remember, one of the gifts that the Magi bring was that myrrh. That bitterness. O Lord, by these things men live, and in all these things is the life of my spirit. So will thou recover me and make me to live. You see, there's a promise there of resurrection, even in this. Behold, for peace, I had great bitterness, but thou hast in love to my soul delivered it from the pit of corruption. Well, doesn't that sound just a little bit like we read Psalm 16, verse 10. You will not leave my soul in hell. It's quoted so many times in the New Testament, particularly the book of Acts and elsewhere. Speaking of Christ, that God wouldn't leave his soul in Sheol and Hades, the pit, this, this holding place. But in love to my soul, delivered it from the pit of corruption. For thou hast cast all my sins behind thy back. For the grave cannot praise thee. Death cannot celebrate thee. They that go down into the pit cannot hope for thy truth. The living, the living, he shall praise thee as I do this day. The father to the children shall make known thy truth. The Lord was ready to save me. Therefore, we will sing my songs to the stringed instruments all the days of our life in the house of the Lord. Now, there's a couple of applications here. Because Hezekiah did write psalms and and so on, and we have some psalms specifically of Hezekiah. So, there is an, an application where some of the songs that Hezekiah had written were sung in the house of the Lord. But I think more so, it's the songs of Jesus that are sung in the house of the Lord. Every time believers come together, almost without fail, we sing songs to the Lord. And often we use stringed instruments, we use the things that God has given us to enhance those songs as we bring our worship. What a wonderful prophetic utterance from Hezekiah in response. Back into Kings, we read verse 8. And Hezekiah said unto Isaiah, What shall be the sign that the Lord will heal me, and that I shall go up into the house of the Lord the third day? Now, some people think this is doubt or unbelief on Hezekiah's part. But you've got to appreciate, five minutes ago, Isaiah came in and said, you're going to die. And now he's just come back and said, actually, King, you're going to live. It's like, which one is it? You can appreciate from Hezekiah's perspective, saying, 
do you mind just giving me a sign? I'd like some confirmation of this this time. So I don't think there's any doubt or any, um, any any sin in Hezekiah asking for this sign. And certainly there's none implied in the response. Because Isaiah says, this sign shall thou have of the Lord. That the Lord will do the thing that he has spoken. So this is a sign that will confirm what we've just said to you. Shall the shadow go forth ten degrees or go back ten degrees? And Hezekiah answered, it is a a light thing for the shadow, no pun intended, a light thing, uh, for the shadow to go down ten degrees. Nay, but let the shadow return backward ten degrees. And Isaiah the prophet cried unto the Lord, and he brought the shadow ten degrees backward, by which it had gone down in the dial of Ahaz. Now, I need some explanation for this, because it it poses a really big problem. Because people are speaking here, they think this is referring to this sundial that Ahaz had had made. Ahaz particularly was keen on inventions for other places, and had brought various things back to Jerusalem, including idolatry and false worship and other bits. Um, But seemingly he got his hold on this, this, this kind of sundial, now... We'll talk in a minute what it may have been. Um, but it poses a really great problem. Because to cause a sundial to go backwards surely means moving the sun. And you'll have all these people that will talk about the problems with celestial mechanics and how if the sun were to go backward, it would cause immense problems in the whole of the, the solar system. It would cause real problems in terms of even things like tidal flows and so on earth. It was just major repercussions. And so that they ask the question, and a lot of people will tell you that this is impossible, this is just nonsense. Other people go to great lengths to find these quite wonderful explanations of how this might have happened. Or they argue that maybe the earth's precession was altered, that it wasn't that the sun moved, went backwards, but actually that something happened with the rotation of the earth at that time. And there's some really good, interesting theories that suggest how that may have occurred. But what did the Bible say actually moved? Does the Bible say it was the sun that moved? No, it doesn't. We'll come back to this in just a moment. I want to give you just some of the explanations of what actually uh, people think could this, this sundial could have been. Firstly... The sundial was possibly a series of steps leading from east to west. And as the sun moved to set in the west, the shadow would move down the steps. And thus would indicate how much daylight was left. So this seemingly is what Ahaz had done. This is, I believe, the most plausible. That these steps were, were used. Ahaz had had these steps set up and had realized that by looking at the shadow as the day progressed, you could work out what the time was, by which step this was on. And so what's happening is that the shadow seemingly goes backwards up the steps. There's a ancient Japanese dial, if you like, uh, kind of a drawing of one. Um, th- these were known in the, that kind of period of history and certainly predating this as well. So certainly that's not an impossibility and probably the most likely. A couple of other options are that it may have been a hollowed out hemisphere with lines on the inside, that kind of thing. Uh, and there's again, this is a real one, that's a kind of picture of one. But again, just to indicate, as the sun moves across, you can see by the lines that are there, very much like a typical sundial we know of today. And then the final one is the idea that it could have been a tall pillar. 
uh, that had kind of steps around it or uh, circular arrangement around this pillar. And as the sun moves, so that the shadow would cast onto these different steps or these different points. Now, we actually have something like that in France. You may not be aware, but the Eiffel Tower is a sundial. And you can see there, going across the bridge, across the Seine. And you get to midday and you'll find that the, the sun causes the shadow of the Eiffel Tower to go across. So that's one of the other suggestions that this this dial of Ahaz may have been a tall column of some description and then as the sun moved it would have then uh, cast its shadow. So those are the various options. I think for a number of reasons the first one is the most likely that it would have been these series of steps and we'll come back to that in a while. But let me ask you the question, did the sun move? Well, what we find in 2 Chronicles 32 verse 31, and we're going to look at this briefly in a while, is that the Babylonians after this come to inquire of the wonder that was done in the land. So they've heard about this. And they come to ask questions about it. And it's referred to as a wonder. Now, if the sun had moved, I'm pretty sure the Babylonians would have noticed it. It's not something that would have just been specific to Israel if the sun had moved. So I think purely on that basis alone, we can discount the sun being the issue here. Only God moved the sun. And incidentally, if it had have been the sun, the danger in that is that the sun was worshipped as Baal and these other various gods that existed. And so it may have been a sign that could have easily been attributed to a god that really wasn't a god. Isaiah 42 verse 8 says, I will, God says, I will not give my glory to another. And to do something in the sun that could be misconstrued as being something another God had accomplished, I don't believe God would do that either. So I think we can dismiss the sun as being the, uh, the cause or the object of this incredible miracle that certainly takes place. Well, let me ask you the question, how else can you move a shadow? It's quite easy, really. There's a little bit of uh, research I was doing last night. So I just drew a circle and I kind of put numbers on it. You see like a clock face. And this is just a, a USB stick I've got. It just happened to be something that's tall that stands up on its own. And you'll notice I made it by putting a light in a various place. Come to about four o'clock or you can see it's pointing to number four. I moved that. I moved the shadow. Now you can try blowing very hard. That doesn't work. What I did, very simply, and you can see there, I've moved the shadow back. It's now pointing at two. Really easy. You just need a greater light. You see, that light was just coming from a lamp on my desk. Suddenly I got these two torches that got very bright and I shone them from a different angle and suddenly the shadow moves. That shadow is still there, but you can't see it now because it's obscured because the light that's causing this is coming from a much greater source. So all you need to move a shadow is a greater light. And I think that is the key to understanding this whole thing. You see, as Hezekiah gazed out of his window, looking at these steps that I believe are there, Bob referred to them earlier this morning, these steps that were in Jerusalem. The steps that the the pilgrims, when they were going to Jerusalem, would stop on these steps on their way up to the temple. This dial was referred to as the dial of Ahaz. It's the word dial, by the way, is actually in the, the Hebrew, literally just means steps. It doesn't mean specifically sundial or anything like that. It's just steps. It's become translated as dial because obviously in that sense, in the context, it was used as a way of telling the time. But suddenly I believe what we see here is the Shekinah glory of God shining out from the temple, which would have been higher up the hill in Jerusalem. 
The, the king's palace would have been lower down than the temple was. And as the Shekinah glory shines out from the temple, a greater light would have shone onto these steps, thus causing the shadow to move position. In effect, creating a new shadow, because a greater light was there, and totally obfuscating the original shadow. Literally, the shadow effectively moves backwards. And if this is the case, all Jerusalem would have also been lit up at this point by God's glory shining out from the temple. One commentator, this was something, I was studying this, I just, joining these dots together, and I thought, let's just see if anybody else has had these thoughts. And there was a number of things on the web, websites I found by other people that have studied and other scholars. And this comment I found, the whole scene, the palace garden, the stairs themselves, the city wall, the horse gate far below, and the Mount of Olives on the opposite side of the valley stand out in sharp relief, vividly delineated in that blinding white light. If this is indeed what happened on that memorable day, what possible doubt could remain in Hezekiah's mind? More convincing by far than any natural celestial phenomenon. This message from the sanctuary was the appearance of God himself. Hezekiah is looking for a sign. What greater sign than seeing the glory of God shine out from the tabernacle? I mean, if you want confirmation that God is on your side, that's the kind of thing you want to see. Now, that shouldn't surprise us in any way because we're told in John 1 verse 9 that Christ is the light of the world. God is light. Not is like light or emits light, but God is light, we're told in 1 John 1 5. And in him is no darkness. We find in Revelation 21 verse 23 that in the new Jerusalem there won't be the need for the sun because the Lamb will be the light thereof. If you look at Genesis chapter 1, Verse 3, we've got that phrase we, we're familiar with. And God said, let there be light and there was light. Well, actually, if you look at the Hebrew, what we've really got there in the text is, said Elohim, be light, be light. If you notice, this word and this word uh, are exactly the same. And then uh, you've just got a, a vav conjunctive there joining the words together grammatically. But then this word as well. Here, this is the word for light. Again, exactly the same word. You may not be able to read Hebrew, but you can recognize the shapes of the letters. Literally, what God said was, be light, be light. Really, I think what God was saying there, when God created the heavens and the earth, and we get to this moment, is let the light illuminate. The point is, the light was there already. In 2 Corinthians 4, 6, we read, For God who commanded the light to shine out of the darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But notice, God commanded the light to shine. You see, the light was already there, it was pre-existent. It's just that this particular moment, God commands it to shine. Now this Shekinah glory, we see it throughout the Old Testament particularly. It's seen as this cloud by day, a fire by night in the wilderness. It's seen in the judgment of Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10 verse 2. This cloud that overcovers the, the, the tabernacle there. Also in the judgment of Korah in number 16 verses 42 to 50. And then probably the most um, graphic description we have is when the temple is dedicated by Solomon. I just read that in 2 Chronicles 7 verses 1 to 3. Now when Solomon had made an end of praying, the fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the house. And the priest could not enter into the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. You see, this isn't the first time that this had happened. 
And when all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord upon the house, they bowed themselves with their faces to the ground upon the pavement and worshipped. I just think of John on Patmos as he sees Jesus, this glory that's surrounding him. What does he do? Exactly the same thing. Falls to the ground as dead. And worshipped and praised the Lord saying, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. This glory of God that was shining out from the temple. Something way beyond any natural light. But interestingly, the Shekinah glory only came forth for one of two purposes. For destruction or for blessing. I mentioned a couple of occasions earlier where it, God had allowed this glory to come for destruction. Nadab Abihu, Korah, cases in point. Other times for great blessing, as when the temple was dedicated. Now, think about this. Remember that at the time that Hezekiah is sick, the Assyrian army was still surrounding Jerusalem. If you look at verse 6 again, you'll see. I just wonder, were the Assyrians consumed by the brightness of his coming? By the brightness, the glory of God that shines out. We know that it's the angel of the Lord that slays 185,000. We're not told how he does it. Could it have been that this incredible glory that shines out of Jerusalem, that comes as a blessing to Hezekiah, would have also come as judgment upon God's enemies? We read in 2 Thessalonians 2.8 that when Jesus returns... Antichrist, the false prophet, and ultimately the devil. They will be consumed by the brightness of his coming. And I just posed that question this morning. that All this occurs at the same time. Could it all be one and the same thing? I think it's extremely likely it was. And therefore, wouldn't it make a lot of sense that this was the wonder that the Babylonians speak of? This is 2 Chronicles 32 Verse 30, 31. This same Hezekiah also stopped the upper water course of Gihon and brought it straight down to the west side of the city of David. And Hezekiah prospered in all his works, howbeit in the business of the ambassadors of the princes of Babylon, who sent unto him, now this is why, to inquire of the wonder that was done in the land. You see... If it was just that 185,000 Syrians had just died mysteriously and nobody knew why, well, they wouldn't have sent a delegation to find out why. But if it was God's glory shining out that had done this, this would have been spoken of far and wide. I think this is the reason that all of those things all converge at this one particular moment in time. Let's jump straight back in then to two kings, because now we read of this visit from these Babylonians. And we read, at that time, Berodoc Baladan, why would you do that to your child, giving that name all the way through school? Can you write your name yet? No, not quite. The son of, ba- uh, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present unto Hezekiah, for he had heard that Hezekiah had been sick. And Hezekiah hearkened unto them and showed them all the house of his precious things, and the silver and the gold and the spices and the precious ointment and all the house of his armour and all that was found in his treasures. There was nothing in his house nor in all his dominion that Hezekiah showed them not. Now, we read that uh, then 
came Isaiah the prophet unto Hezekiah and said unto him, What said these men? And from whence came they unto thee? And Hezekiah said, Oh, from a long, long way away. Oh, it's from Babylon. It's so far away. And he said, What have they seen in thine house? Is Isaiah asking a question. Hezekiah answered, All the things that are in my house they've seen, there's nothing among my treasures that I've not shown them. Now, there is, from what we read in Chronicles, an element of pride here on Hezekiah's part. Just showing all the things that have been accomplished. Of course, it was only because of God's blessing. But nevertheless, he shows these ambassadors from Babylon. Isaiah said unto Hezekiah, Hear the words of the Lord. Behold, the days come that all that is in thine house and all that which thy fathers have laid up in store unto this day shall be carried into Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And of thy sons that shall issue from thee, which thou shalt beget, they shall take away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Now, again, in Hebrew, there's no word for grandfather or for grandson in that context. We're talking about sons, we're talking about descendants. And we find that Daniel, one of the princes, we don't know quite the relationship, but we know that by the time we get a little bit further on to the time of Daniel, Daniel was taken away. And just as been said here, they took away the, the, the best of the, the sons of the land to Babylon. And they were made eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So this warning now, because Hezekiah has opened up the doors and allowed them to come in and see everything. Then said Hezekiah unto Isaiah, Good is the word of the Lord which he has spoken. And he said, uh, Is it not good if peace and truth be in my days? In other words, he's like, well, okay, judgment's coming, but <laughs> I'm okay. Almost a blasé response. But then... Apart from this one incident, everything we read of Hezekiah had been good. And we read, the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and all his might and how he made a pool and a conduit and brought water into the city. Remember we spoke about Hezekiah's tunnel uh, last week. Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? And Hezekiah slept with his fathers and Manasseh, his son, reigned in his stead. Now, just a good list from a, a chronological point of view. We find that um, he's 25 years old, Hezekiah, when he becomes king. He reigns for 29 years. Now, in the last few years of his life, okay, you remember, his 15 years are added to his days. Oh, and by the way, I forgot to mention, we have those 15 steps that go up to Jerusalem. Is there any coincidence in that? These songs of ascent that start from Psalm 120 and they go from there, 15 psalms. Some scholars think that those psalms were actually penned by Hezekiah. We know certainly that he wrote some of the the psalms, uh, and it may well be that those psalms were in response to this extra 15 years and these 15 steps. Uh, There may well be a, a connection there. But these 15 years, after three of those 15 years, he has a son called Manasseh. Manasseh will go on to be the worst king that Judah has by a long way. Manasseh will become the reason that God brings his judgment upon the land. We then find that Manasseh eventually will have another child, Ammon. He's going to reign for just two years. Again, a wicked son. And then we get to Josiah. Josiah, just eight years old when he becomes king, reigns for 31 years. A great king. He brings such reforms. He brings back the Passover that they'd not celebrated. And he really turns the heart of the people back to God. He implements a Bible study program around the nation. Really, really good king. That's what's coming as we come 
to the end of Judah as it was. We'll, we'll leave it there because I love to spend time and look at Manasseh this morning, but there's so much to, to look at in regard to Manasseh. And there's a lot of hope as well when we look at Manasseh because yes, he was evil. Yes, he was wicked. Yes, God brought judgment upon him. But right at the end of his life, he turns back to God. And there's a great encouragement there for any one of us, anybody that's got children that don't yet know the Lord. They may run their whole life. But right at the end, Manasseh came back. And by the way, some people think that Hezekiah made a mistake by asking for those extra years because during that time Manasseh was born. I don't think so. God doesn't judge the parents because of the sins of the children. Or vice versa. And Manasseh was, was wicked. There was, what else could Hezekiah have done? I don't, we don't know what happened in those 12 years. But everything we read about Hezekiah, he was a good man, a godly man that sought God. And I think he was witness to one of the most incredible moments in the history of the kings of Judah. Again, as this glory of God, as we were speaking earlier, just shines forth. Enough to consume all the enemies and enough to give him this great confidence that God was on his side. Let's leave it there for now. We'll pick it up from there next week. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you once again for your word. Father, we thank you for just the depth that is here. Lord, speak to us, we pray. Help us to grow in knowledge and grace. May these things challenge us, Father. May they stir us and help us to want to live godly lives before you. Father, as we contemplate and think that it will not be long before we see you in your glory. As we look upon you with our own eyes, albeit with our new bodies. And then for eternity, we won't have to rely on the sun or any other lights. You will be the light. Thank you, Lord, that we're told that Jesus is the light of the world and he came into this world to light every man. Well, thank you, Lord, that we this morning have the privilege of having our lives illuminated by the light of the world. Father, just draw us closer. Keep us walking with you each moment of every day we ask for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.